couple of weeks ago, we were in First Timothy, and we're really just beginning our, our study, which is going to be extensive as we look at First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus, and, and begin to ask ourselves the question of what would God have our church to look like if we were to take uh, the truths of Scripture and begin to apply those to, to our body here at RBC. And you'll remember that as Paul spoke a couple of weeks ago, and if not, let me help to refresh you, that Paul started talking about these people are engaged in teaching. These people are engaged in teaching, and they're doing so in just a really kind of a bad way. They were engaged in, in discussions of endless genealogies. They wanted to talk about, you know, how the birth order of certain people led to this great revelation. They were really just engaged in speculation, and Paul got to the end of it, and he said these people wanted to be known as what? They wanted to be known as teachers of the law. They wanted people in the community to recognize them as those who were entrusted with communicating God's Word. They wanted to have people recognize them and be like, oh, that's, that's so-and-so. He is the teacher of the law. But then Paul evaluates. He, he boils down their teaching, and he says... Their teaching is worthless. Their, te- their teaching is absolutely devoid of value. Because these people that want to be known as teachers of the law, they don't understand what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So there's no, no lack in confidence. They have confidence by the bucket load, but they have no understanding of the things that they communicate. And so now if you were to take that and you were just to look at that and you start thinking about it, it's not casting the law in a very good light, is it? I mean, you are to look at that and you're just like, whoa, man, these guys are teachers of the law and they're not doing a good job handling the law. It leads us to believe that Paul doesn't think very highly of the law. And so Paul spends these next few verses as we journey today through verses 8 through 11 showing us the purpose of what the law was intended, showing us how the law works, how the law functions. But this isn't this type of Romans or Galatians exposition on the law. This is unique to the church in Ephesus. He's showing them, for their purposes, how they should offer a course corrective to those who are adding the law on top of what they've already done. Now remember something. Remember that Paul spent a great deal of time in Ephesus. Paul poured out his life in Ephesus. Paul gave months on top of years in Ephesus. These people didn't receive some type of diluted teaching. They didn't receive, you know, the gospel according to paraphrase and then sit there and read it and try and put that together. They received teaching directly from Paul, yet they've still kind of wandered away. They've still had this errant teaching to enter into their community. It is vigilance. It is, it is express effort on our part to continually evaluate teaching alongside God's Word. See, we can't just, just hope and wish that, that bad things aren't going to happen in our community, that errant teaching isn't just going to enter its way into our community, because it is coming unless we are actively pursuing putting this thing to death, putting errant teaching to death and uplifting and reading and ingesting God's holy word. So with that, we get into 8 through 11. Paul writes and he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, 
for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I mean, this is really, it's, it's an ending for what we began when he started talking about the teachers of the law, but it is a setup for this beautiful exposition of the gospel applied to Paul's life. Man, next week we're going to look at Paul's his understanding of how the gospel has transformed him, how the gospel has come and radically affected his life. But this week he is setting it up and showing us the intent of the law. Paul writes and he says, Now we know that the law is good. You see, one of the arguments that people were using against Paul, and not just in Ephesus and other churches as well, is that Paul was advocating this, this live-as-you-choose determinism. They were, they were saying that Paul is really just engaged in this fancy word antinomianism, that Paul is engaged in, in this anti-law teaching, that you can just live however you want, you can just choose to do the things however you want to do, that the law has, has no use, no value, that Paul has completely kicked it to the side and said, grace all the way, law, what, what is the law? And so they picked up on that, and they began to try and import the law back into teaching and lay the law on top of the gospel. They began to lay the law on top of the gospel and say that, yeah, you can be a Christian, but if you want to be a next-level Christian, then you have to do these things. Then you have to look at these genealogies, then you have to, to study this other teaching to take you to the next level of elevation in your Christian life and experience, and they begin to import the, gospel, import the law back on top of the gospel. So Paul begins the discussion with this. He says, the law is good. He says, the law has value, the law has purpose, the law has a function that it serves. Then he offers this caveat, he says, if it is used lawfully. Paul's making this argument. He's saying, you guys that want to be known as teachers of the law, you're using the law, you're corrupting it, you're using it in a way that it was never intended to be used. So you begin to ask yourself the question of how is the law to be used? If you flip over to Psalm 19 and verse 7, the Psalms just writes this of the law. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Paul describes the law in other places as a mirror. He describes it in his life as saying, I would not have known that I shouldn't covet if the law didn't say not to covet. So Paul shows us the purpose of the law in this segment. He says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless. See, Paul goes in, and he's, he's going to give us, in some sense, his understanding of how the law works for the unregenerate. He says, look, the law was given primarily for those to point out their sinfulness. I remember when I was working at Southwestern, I was a, a conference coordinator, and we had we'd brought this guy in who was a famous apologist, and he was going to come talk to us about, about the Bible and I mean, the news media picked it up. He got interviewed by three or four uh, television stations. He was in the newspaper. And I was in my office one day, and the phone rang, and I answered the phone, and this girl said, 
hey, I saw you guys are having this guy come in and speak. And when I read his story, when I read about his life, it really resonated with me. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, can I transfer you to somebody else? I'm, I'm, I'm not really a you know, help desk person, but, but are, are you looking to put on a conference or something? And I was, I was slow at that point of my life. Um, I've gotten better. And so she starts, she says, no, I mean, I just, is there a chance I could meet this guy? I said, well, you know, I'm really sorry. He's already flown back to California. He's not in town anymore. I'm beginning to, to catch up to speed at this point. And, and so I said, let me ask you a question. What about his life resonated with you? What about his life really spoke to you? She said, well, you know, his upbringing, his understanding of God, and really just this, I'm going to use a word that, that I'm going to use. I don't think she used this one. She said, the way that God caused a revelation in his life. I think she said, the way that God woke him up. So I just said, we'll call her Crystal. I said, Crystal, let me ask you a question. I said, do you think you're a good person? And she said, yeah, I think I'm probably a pretty good person. I think I'm, you know, I'm a college student. I'm a good person. And then I began to, to show her how the law if you were to take the Decalogue, if you were to take the Ten Commandments and lay that over her life, that it showed her not to be a good person. You see, what, what resonated for her in her life, along with the speaker, is seeing the fact that God had interjected himself into this man's life. Now, what she didn't know, because she didn't have the opportunity to sit down with him, is that this man was, was confronted with his sin. He was confronted with the fact that God demands absolute holy perfection. And when he was confronted with that, realized that he couldn't attain to that, live up to that by any efforts of his own, that according to the law, he was guilty. He surrendered his life to Christ. So I began to, to pour out to this girl. I began to show her how in the eyes of the law that she is guilty of sin and she is deserving of death and the wrath of God. And she began to cry out for the forgiveness of God. She began to cry out because, see, the law, when used lawfully, it shows this perfect standard of God. That when we look upon it, and we look upon it before we are justified by Christ, we are crushed with this understanding that we could never attain to the satisfaction of God. That we could never uphold all of these things that the law puts forward that we should do. And so Paul shows how these things work out in the life of the unjust. He says the law is not laid down for the just or the justified. He says, but it is for the lawless and the disobedient. It's for the lawless and the disobedient. It's for the people that say that, that, that there's no absolute, there's nothing that I need to do, there's, there's nothing that I need to say. He says for the disobedient. It's for those that, that look, they have some, some conception that there is a God out there, some conception that there, there is this higher power, but they say, you know what, I'm just going to live my life however I want to. I'm just going to live my life in active disobedience. So then they look back and they see the law. And the law provides for them condemnation. It says the law is for these people. It says for the lawless, it's for the disobedient. Going on, he says that, that it is for the ungodly and the sinners. 
The law is for the people that absolutely look and say that there is no value in the things of God. There's no value in the things of God. They rebel against the things of God. It is for the sinners. It is for those actively engaged in moving away from God. And that's who the law is for. It's for them, as Psalm 19.7 said, to revive their soul. It is for them so that as they look and reflect upon the perfect law of God, that it reminds them of their inability to be acceptable on their own. It, it awakens in them this understanding that they can't accomplish it on their own. It's for the ungodly and for the sinners. He says it's for the unholy and profane. How great is this? That God sets his law and it is for those who are in some sense opposed to him. It is for the unholy, those who do in, in, in accordance with their lives everything opposite of the gospel. And some of us have these people in our families. And so when we look at this list and we're looking at, at these people and these characteristics, we're not just thinking some type of out there sinner. We're not just thinking some out there ungodly. We're not just thinking somebody that's out there and disobedient. I think, man, that's John. Man, that's my child. Man, that's my daughter. Man, that's my mother. That's my cousin. That's my coworker. And the law, when applied to their lives, shows them of their need for a Savior. Friends, and the law, when it is applied to their lives, shows them their inability to please a holy and a righteous and a merciful God. It shows them these things. It says, for the unholy and for the profane. And then Paul begins to, to draw a more explicit reference to the Ten Commandments. It says it's for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. So he begins to go through and he systematically says, you know, the Decalogue refers to honoring your father and your mother, but those of you who strike your father or your mother, your translation might, might be rendered murder. You strike in such a way as to cause harm or to inflict death, to bring about death. He says, man, the law is for you. The law is for you. It's for the, for the murderers. It's for those who kill those who take the life of one who is made in the image of God. So we are all made in the image of God, and so when you murder, you're killing one made in the image of God. He goes on, he says, men who practice homosexuality. <coughs> Actually, let me go back. He says the sexually immoral. And you see, we look at this and we say, well, the sexually immoral, these are people that, that cheat on their spouse. The sexually immoral, these are people that, that aren't married but that are engaged in this type of, uh, this, this attitude and this lifestyle of just whatever I want to gratify, gratify the flesh. But when we start looking at sexual immorality, man, it is so much more perverse than this. The great lie that many of us have bought into is the fact that if we are not cheating on our spouse, if we are not engaged in sex outside of marriage, that we are living lives of sexual acceptance. We are living lives that are sexually moral. But there's a tremendous problem. See, when you look at statistics, when you look at the pervasive and devastating effects of pornography, not only outside the church, but inside the church, it should be 
shocking and sickening to us. That we have so lowered what it is to be pure, that we have so lowered what it is to be sexually moral, to be right before God, that we have said, these things that my eyes take in don't affect me in my inmost being. That, that, that as men and increasingly even as women, that as you look and you take in images, that as you take in segments of movies, that as you take in coarse jesting, then when you do these things, I read one, one author a couple of weeks ago, and he said this is the devastating effect of pornography, that you take one who is made in the image of God and you use it to gratify the flesh. You take one who is made in the image of God and you devalue them to the point so that you can elevate some sensation of yourself so that you can get gratification based upon their degradation. See, as a church, we need to stand out. We need to stand out against the pervasive effects of sexual immorality, and we need to do so not just in strengthening of our marriages. We need to do so against the devastating effects of pornography. I mean, this isn't a real comfortable, comfortable conversation to have with people, is it? But as men and, and, and women, we need to come together and, and hold each other accountable. Men, we need to be praying against the harmful effect of these things, how they destroy marriages. They ruin innocence. Children are exposed to this too early in their lives. It can completely set them on on a path and on a course that can lead to harmful relationship after harmful relationship because they have had modeled for them such a devastating thing. He says the law is for those who are sexually immoral. He says the law is for men who practice homosexuality. Increasingly, society has been, been moving to an acceptance of, of a lifestyle that is an aberration before God, is increasingly moving to saying, hey, look, that, that homosexuality is really, it's the next great landscape in the civil rights debate. That just as, as African Americans were kept from voting, just as all these minorities were subjugated and held under the thumb of the oppressors, so too now today the homosexuals are the same deal. And they say, look, you just need to, you need to read your Bible with a more nuanced view. And so there's this whole school of thought in theology. There's this whole framework of reading the text that when they come to things like this, they say, well, this is just Paul. See, Paul's engaged in here a little bit of the spinning his own opinion, spinning his own understanding of how things should work out, or he's addressing a problem that's particular to the church in Ephesus. See, there's a real problem with that. See, if we're going to say that this is the Word of God, that God revealed Himself to Paul, and Paul wrote these words as God gave him instruction, then these, friends, are not the words of Paul, but these are the words of God. There's only one way to read that. And that is to say that God is opposed to this lifestyle that is wholly sinful. That, that men and women have exchanged the natural order of things and have come together, as Paul says in Romans. But the law is intended for such. The law is intended for these types of people, for people that engage in this lifestyle. That as they look and reflect upon the law, they realize that they can't live up to this expectation of a holy and a righteous God. That they surrender their lives and they ask God to radically transform them. 
He says it is for the enslavers. It's for those who would take another individual and steal them in some sense and sell them into slavery for their own gain. It is for the liars. It's for those who who really lightly handle the truth. Now, since Valerie and I moved into our house, there's a little boy in our neighborhood that comes over just about every day, and, and he does not hold the truth in high regard. I mean, if, if, if everything he says is true, then his family is not only fabulously wealthy, but he got to spend a, a great deal of time at Disney World when he was in Destin. <laughs> Ge- geographically, they're not in the same city. You guys are getting there. And so you ask him about all these things, and I mean, he just, you know, one right after the another, right after another, and, and next week they're going to build his, his 50-foot pool, and, and all of these things, and he doesn't hold the truth in high regard, but he is, I mean, he's a child, right? You expect kids to say things that just make, make no sense. But, but we see the same thing among adults. We see the same thing among older children, teenagers, that we exchange truth for dishonesty because it is more expedient, because it makes us look better, because it advances us uh, in our careers and in, in our academic pursuits and in our relationships. Now, I'm not talking about the type of deal where your wife walks in and says, does this skirt make me look fat? I mean, find a way to get out of the room. Don't answer that. Just, just get out of the room and no, it doesn't, never. I mean, you're so thin. She's going to stay up here for a while. She should have stayed in the Philippines. Not really. But we need to have a higher regard for truth. We need to have a higher regard for, for truth and honesty. And he says perjurers, those who under oath say things that are just blatantly false. But this is where Paul gets us all. See, we go through that list and we say, man, I don't struggle with this. I don't struggle with that. I don't have people in my circle that have any of these issues going on in their lives. And then Paul says, check it out. I'm going to catch everybody. He says, in anything else, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, See, Paul looks at it and says, this this doctrine, this gospel is pure. It is unsullied, it is untarnished. And anything else in your life that you look at and you don't find commended in this work is opposed to the gospel. Paul says, in that, the law serves purpose. Because it directs us back, it helps us remember to appreciate and to value, to cherish, to recognize the rare position that we are in as as recipients of the grace that God has bestowed upon us in salvation. He says, if there's anything else that's contrary to sound doctrine, and he says it is sound doctrine that is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted and Christians, inasmuch as God has saved you, has radically transferred you from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light, you have been entrusted with the gospel. Inasmuch as God has taken his law and applied it to your life and shown you your inability to save yourselves, and you have cried out, Abba, Father, save me. You have been entrusted with the gospel. And as you have been entrusted with the gospel, so too you should be out there communicating the gospel. See, God demonstrates his love to us in this. 
and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, that's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that, that God gave his law that no man could satisfy, but Jesus Christ satisfied perfectly in his sacrifice, perfectly in offering himself up as an atonement for sin, for the redemption of humanity. What are you doing with the gospel that you've been trusted with? And each day as we enter into the community, we are surrounded by liars, by perjurers, by those who are sexually immoral, by those who exchange the natural function of man and woman to be engaged in those that are wholly unnatural. We are surrounded by them in our family, some of us in our homes. And we've been entrusted with the gospel. We've been entrusted with the cure. Do you hoard it selfishly? Do you keep it back out of fear of how you'll be viewed, how you'll be judged? Because I'm telling you this. One thing I picked up on over these last couple of weeks is that to live in a community where to accept Christ costs you something. There's this amazing transformation that takes place. Because they realize this grace isn't cheap. Because they realize that to follow Christ puts them in harm's way. Some of us have grown complacent. Some of us have grown fat with apathy. But God calls us to remember that we have been entrusted with the gospel. That we have overcome sin and death in Christ. And he calls us to involvement in the lives of those around us and to the communication of that gospel. Let me pray for us.